Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Unleashing the Kingdom with Susan DeBrew. I am your co-host, Steve Pixler, and we're back talking about all things related to the kingdom of God. Now, you may have been following us the last few weeks. You know, we've been taking a few little breaks here and there, but we've been talking a lot about ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church. We've been talking about how the ecclesia releases the kingdom of God into the world. Today, we're going to come back to that topic, but we're going to try to put a little bow on it today, sort of wrap some of that up, talk about a little bit of new material, but then also set up for a whole new series of episodes where we're going to keep talking about how the kingdom of God comes through the transformation of the heart, particularly through inner healing. We're going to be talking about some of that. We're going to be talking some about forgiveness in future episodes. We have some great things planned for the next several weeks and months. It's going to be a great series of episodes. You're going to want to be a part of that. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us. Share these episodes with your friends. Tell everyone you can about what's happening at Unleashing the Kingdom. Also, go by kingdombrewing.com. Check out our resources. We have several books available there. Hey, newsflash, we got a new book coming here in just a few weeks. We're about to release a brand new one. This was going to be a, an amazing new book that's going to really focus on some of the things we've talked a lot about in the, the podcast. So share this with your friends, tell people about it, and let's get ready to join the conversation. We believe the kingdom of God is coming in the world. All right, Susan, All right. let's jump in together here and yeah. talk about the well, kingdom of God. Well, you've been doing such a great job with the ecclesia. I really do want to continue that because to me, uh, understanding that the church as Jesus saw it is different than the way we have kind of morphed it into, oh, yeah, for sure. especially in modern Western Christianity. But even just over the years, if the enemy wants us to be disempowered, all he has to do is change the structure, yeah. right? And then you know, if you change the engine in the car, it's just not going to work the same. And yeah. that's kind of the idea that Jesus had with the ecclesia is that it is a gathering of his people. It is about worship, but it's also about government. Yes. It's about ruling and reigning on the earth. Yeah. And it's about ushering in his kingdom. And so would you kind of wrap us up a little bit about yeah, ecclesia? I, I think the primary difference between what we're, when we say ecclesia versus church, first of all, we should remember that the word church is actually not even a good translation of the word ecclesia. Right. So upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. ecclesia. Mm-hmm. And we just, everywhere the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament, most translations just put the word church there. But the word church actually is traced back probably. There's a lot of discussion on the etymology of the word, but it's probably traced back to Kyriakos, which is house of the Lord. Mm. So it doesn't even really refer specifically to what an ecclesia was. So an ecclesia, of course, was a governmental gathering going all the way back to ancient Athens. Mm. And it was the gathering of the people to do the business of the city. Now, it was still very religious because they saw the business of the city as a form of worship. People were religious. That's they right. just were. That's and, right. And some of them worshiped different gods or whatever. But the whole idea was worship was an integral part of their culture. Absolutely. And their business of the city was service to the god of that city. Mm-hmm. And so they saw Ecclesia very much as a religious gathering but they saw it as in service to their God doing the business both domestic and foreign of a city-state, mm-hmm. which Athens was a city-state, and many were back in, in ancient Greece. So then that word comes down into our usage through you know a long history. But the, the idea that we're reclaiming when we talk about ecclesia is, as you mentioned, that governmental 
aspect of the gathering of, of God's people. So it's how we release God's government Absolutely. into the culture and into the fabric of society. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that, of course, we're doing an Ecclesia series at our church as well, Freedom Life. Uh, you can go to myfreedomlife.com if you're it's interested. It's a really great series. Yeah, it's been yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. We've had the whiteboard out and everything. So you can go see big timelines and all kinds of cool stuff. Which has actually been really helpful. Yeah. We even kind of contemplated today, like, can we get a whiteboard? Right. You know? what, how would that work for our audio listeners? Yeah, so, but still, yeah. that would be so much fun if we could figure that out. But um, so in, in our teaching, in our lesson we've been doing at the church, in our series we've been doing, we've been talking a lot about Ecclesia. And where I'm headed next with Ecclesia actually is something that I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, and that is that the ecclesia is meant to function in a priestly, prophetic, and kingly role. Mm. We understand, well, at least we have a, a fun, kind of a basic understanding of the priestly nature of the church. We yeah. believe when the church gathers, it's meant to worship, meant right. to hear the word, meant to do communion, meant to have some fellowship. You know, right. just some of those things that go around the priestly dimension of, of, the, of the church's ministry. Most churches have very little concept of its prophetic role. Now, those who are in more of a charismatic stream like our congregation probably would lean more into the prophetic, that there's going to be room made, even if it's just in the preaching of the message. If somebody's not prophetic. familiar with that term, what mm -hmm. do you mean by that? Well, it means hearing the voice of the Lord and saying what he's saying. Mm -hmm. You know, it's knowing what he's saying and, and conveying it. Too many people, and I was one many years ago, when you said the word prophetic, I'm, I picture Gandalf with an attitude, you know, somebody with a big <laughs> long beard, a staff who wants to call judgment right. judgment down on the world. And that's not what we mean by One of prophetic. the minor prophets condemning the sins of the people kind of thing. <laughs> when, beard blowing in the wind, all of that. Where prophetic really is. Uh, hearing what what's on the Lord's heart, what's He saying? Yes, and and bringing that to the well, table. and in, and in the New Covenant, First Corinthians makes it very clear that the prophetic is for encouragement, consolation, and edification. Yeah. So, the prophetic, uh, even if it in any sense highlights a sin, it is always for the purpose of bringing hope and healing. Right. So it's to build up to build up the body, to That's build right. up the individual people, yeah. to encourage them that they can do it, and to console them or to comfort them yes. when they need it. Yes. And it's to uh, bring God's perspective into their situations. Yes. And so I, I love the prophetic. To me, it's like how, it's having a relationship with a living God. Like it's yeah. just for me, it's like it's his half of the equation. Like we always have our ideas, but what about his ideas? Yeah. What about his thoughts? And so the prophetic in, you know, Paul said to desire, meaning like to earnestly pursue spiritual gifts. Yes. But especially, especially. that you prophesy. Yeah. And so it's not just for the, for the superstars or for the big Gandalfs. It's for every single person in the body of Christ. We can all learn to hear God's voice. Yeah. And we can learn how to share what we're getting for others. And it's how we actually interconnect as a body. And then when you combine that with the kingly, mm. so you take the priestly, the prophetic, and the kingly. And the kingly, of course, is understanding the, the authoritative decrees, how you actually not only issue the decrees of an ecclesia, mm. but you also authorize people within the ecclesia to go and live out as kings in their own realm, their own sphere, yeah. to live out their authority. So the kingly has a lot to do. It can even have to do with binding and loosing. The kingly has to do with making decisions and judgments and discerning and strategies. And there's just a, mm. it's it's more the enacting or the administration. So if you think of ecclesia then in a governmental role, then you'll also begin to think of its priestly task in a more governmental sense. In other words, we're not just here 
to give a round of applause to Jesus. We're not just here to celebrate how good God is, but we're actually here to release the kingdom into the world through worship so that worship and communion and kononia and all of the things that we do in the priestly ministry actually releases the kingdom into the world. It's like the mushroom cloud of the presence of God erupting out of our gatherings and drifting across an entire region. And so you actually shift atmospheres with worship and you understand worship is warfare. You release angel armies and all of the stuff that's happening. So So then if we're thinking ecclesia versus church, in other words, we're thinking about a kingdom gathering meant to release the kingdom into the world and to train people how to do so. If you're thinking kingdom rather than church, then worship becomes transformed. You're not just there to give polite applause to Jesus. Or to be entertained for an hour. Or to be entertained and hear great music Mm -hmm. while the professionals, you know, blow your mind with the latest guitar solo. It really becomes what, and then you cooperate with the spirit in worship and worship becomes very uh, efficacious is the big word, but it actually begins to be very effective. Mm -hmm. And it's not just worship that's just, you know, trying to fling mud at the wall to see if something sticks. You know, fighting uncertainly is one that beats the air, becomes very strategic. And then the prophetic does the same thing. Instead of just, uh, as we often do in charismatic worlds, there's nothing wrong with this, uh, instead of just the indiscriminate prophesying over one another, which can be very, very edifying and very blessing, but it actually becomes a very strategic where you have trusted voices in the house who, and we see um, Glory of Zion do this a lot, Chuck Mm -hmm. Pierce, where they'll bring up, and, and there'll be particular people who are very yes. prophetic and very trusted, and they will actually release the prophetic in, you know, formally in front of the gathering so that this becomes a prophetic word that's being released mm-hmm. authoritatively. And then you have the kingly, and the kingly, of course, does kings dispense wisdom. So it has a lot to do with the teaching and, and, government. and, and the government and the releasing of keys and actually giving people keys for the kingdom and teaching them love, wisdom, and power, knowing how to work that out in the world. So when we talk about ecclesia, we're talking about a shift from just going and sitting in rows and observing professionals do religious rituals for us. Which is most church services, even those who want to empower the people. That's right. Really, the focus is always more on the people uh, watching rather than being uh, released or empowered. Even the churches who work very hard to empower people, it's still like a lecture hall. We're empowering you by giving you information. So you come and sit and we're like a professor teaching you at college and we will lecture you on how to be a better parent, how to be a better whatever. And we will give you, and that's not that that's wrong. It's, it's that can be very, it's incomplete. Yeah. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is people go and they listen and they receive, but they don't know how it's like going and listening to someone tell you how to be a mechanic. You can tell me how to repair an engine on a vehicle. But until you put a wrench in my hand, right, and walk me through, and it. walk me through, Paul it. said we have Mentor many me. teachers, but we don't and have many, many fathers. fathers. That's and right. a father is one who walks through life with you. That's exactly and right. mentors you and lays their life down for you and yeah. encourages you and, and doesn't that, just give you information and you go home. And exactly, and then you actually get the opportunity to practice that, and that's what we call activations. Yes, that's when you actually get yeah. in that environment where you're actually activating what you're learning, mm-hmm. and you're not just getting your head stuffed with knowledge, but your hands are getting greasy. You're learning to to get in and and get dirt on your hands. You're learning to work in the field. Right. You can't just learn farming from a book. Nope, and it has to be a safe environment to make mistakes. Exactly. Because you learn from those two. That's right. Yeah. 
In fact, if you don't make mistakes, you're not learning, yeah. just to be honest. And so the ecclesia then uh, becomes a kingdom-centered um, gathering rather than just the gathering of people to do a religious exercise. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the big shift. And I love when you were talking about both with the prophetic and with the kingly, when you look at the difference between um, Christ's kingdom and the kingdoms that the world tries to manufacture, the, the kingdoms of the world, there's one grand poop on the top, there's mm-hmm. a, you know, or an oligarchy, there's a few p- powerful people close to the ones at the top. And it really becomes about just them, mm-hmm. where Christ always comes to down to lift others up. He comes to wash our feet. He didn't come to be served, but to be the servant of all. It's a very mm-hmm. different kind of kingdom. Yeah. And with the prophetic, when you have, like you say, you have a handful of trusted people who are not only bringing forth prophetic words into the environment, because each one of them sees things differently. Mm-hmm. The Lord um, actually loves to um, see the world through our eyes, mm-hmm. if you will. And so he shows us different things. Things. He shows, he might give you a different piece of the puzzle than he gives me, mm-hmm. but without your piece, without my piece, it's not complete. Yeah. And that's where we begin to learn to honor the Lord and the Holy Spirit in other people and understand that they are bringing something important to the table. And with the kingdom side of it, so that's the prophetic side, with the kingdom side of it, we're all royalty. Yeah. We are all children of the king. That's right. Where, you know, and he is the king of kings. And it's not just the king of rulers, which it is, but it also is the king of us as individual um, people who need to understand who we really are in the kingdom, that we yeah. really do release and have a power and have authority that what we think and what we say and what we do doesn't just impact ourselves. Yeah. And that's why the person who... Um, either because of wounding or whatever, sits in a back room, isolates themselves, maybe is walking in sin or whatever, they're still affecting their community. Yes. They're still affecting their family. They're still affecting the world around them. There's no such thing of as, well, it only hurts me. Mm. That's just not That's true. That's just not true. You're mm. right. And when, we, when you isolate, the body's missing the peace that you were created yeah. to bring. Yeah. It's like having sickness in a foot. The yeah. whole body gets the whole affected. body gets you get a fever and your head hurts right and it's all coming from a foot you know mm-hmm. so one of the things that we've been doing in our series at freedom life is i felt like the lord really directed me that in order for the ecclesia to function as ecclesia based on all these things we've been talking about which have right. been really really fun um first of all there has to be an audacious faith i love that word by the way yeah. audacious faith audacious <laughs> it's faith. such a there, great word there has to because if you really <laughs> stop and think about what we are saying the ecclesia is meant to do it mm-hmm. is audacious it is it actually is pretty crazy mm-hmm. in fact i think that's why a lot of christians reduce it down to a religious gathering because religion seems it makes more sense well and it's doable it's doable we it's can manageable. accomplish that's it that's right Look what we did. Didn't yeah. we have a great service? Mm-hmm. Didn't we get converts? Didn't yeah. we? Yeah, we had some, so many accept Christ. We and there's so nothing many wrong with all that. It's just, again, it's incomplete. incomplete. Yeah. But if we actually believe mm-hmm. that the kingdom of God is coming in the world and that the ecclesia is the, um, the threshold, the ecclesia is not the kingdom. It is the entrance to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And if through the ecclesia, the kingdom flows out into the world and actually transforms the real world, by transforming real people. Right. If we actually believe that, it requires an audacious faith. Because it requires every single one of us. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a radical agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so then what I felt like the Lord said to me then is, 
then you have to talk about the gospel of the kingdom again mm-hmm. because people are not going to understand what the ecclesia is meant to do if they're still struggling with a false eschatology. Yeah. And I think that's a really big deal because if we're talking about the kingdom, it's kind of like the word prophetic, right? Mm-hmm. People, you can say prophetic, and one person sees Gandalf with an attitude. Right. What I mean, like a, an Old Testament you prophet, raw, right? Whereas somebody like me was thinking, like, oh, we're all learning to hear the voice of the Lord ourselves and begin to share with one another. Two totally different perspectives. If you say the word kingdom, people out that are listening to us today, they're going to have different perspectives. So, yes. define what you mean by the kingdom. Well, the kingdom of God, of course, is the rule of God. It's the rule of the heavens. But it's not just the rule of God. Because God created humans and gave them dominion, it is the rule of God in cooperation with people. It's a union. It is a union, a absolutely. And, and so when we say the kingdom of God, we don't just mean that we are, are the subjects of a king, and thus we just, you know, hail King Jesus, hail King Jesus. Uh, that's certainly true. We do hail King Jesus. But at the same time, we understand that we were meant to rule and reign with him. We were meant to come into partnership with him mm-hmm. and to be kings to rule and reign as kings with Jesus. He said, he that overcomes will sit with me in my father's throne. And so you'll sit on thrones judging the, the 12 tribes of Israel over and over and over. you reign in life. You're going to judge angels. There's just so many statements in the New Testament about our reigning. The issue is ecclesia and eschatology. Now, eschatology is the doctrine of last things, es- eschaton or eschatos. It literally means how things are going to end. So... When we talk about eschatology, we mean specifically what is the end times? What do the end times look like to you? And a huge part of what has happened over the last couple of centuries, century and a half, has been well more than a century and a half. The last couple of centuries, there has been a, a huge shift uh, in the church's thinking toward what the church is meant to do in the world particularly in the early and mid 1800s yes that's where it really started catching on that you know everything's going to be horrible and bad and we're just going to get caught away and yes exactly they started developing uh, their early church did not believe that no it was about in the 1830s you had a guy named jay and darby that started what later became known as dispensationalism and it was the idea that you know the church is going to be raptured out and all of that now there had been um there had been different groups like that throughout church history that had, you know, wonky eschatology along the way. But this one took hold. And I think the reason it took hold in what we would know as the evangelical church or the even the fundamentalist movements within the evangelical church, I think it took hold because of the backlash against medieval Christianity, mm-hmm. Christendom, the Holy Roman Empire, and what the Eastern and the Western churches and even African churches had become. So Coptic Christianity, Eastern Christianity, Western Christianity, they had become defined by Greek Orthodox and all of its offshoots, Roman Catholicism, and then later Protestantism and all of its offshoots. And then you have African, which would be Coptic and different forms of Christianity. They all had become hyper-institutionalized. They had become... um, they got mixed up somewhere in there and thought they should go back and try to recapture the the tabernacle, the temple in a literal sense, rather than seeing it as a type and shadow of what worship should look like fulfilled in Christ. They began to actually go back and create all of these ceremonies that had, you know, the lighting of candles, the incense and all these different things. And they, and then they began to try to 
manifest the kingdom through cathedrals, beautiful stained glass, you know, pipe organs, all these different things they began to do. And Christianity became very, you know, pyramid, power mid, became very hierarchalized. And it was, you know, you have the Pope, then you have the... Uh, uh, the, the archbishops, you have the patriarchs in, in the Eastern tradition, you have the patriarchs in the Coptics, different ones, and you have all of these leaders coming out of the bishops of the cities. And, and, and Christianity became very institutionalized, and it became very corrupted. I mean, horribly corrupted, violent, murderous, immoral. Uh, the, the history of Christianity is, it is dismaying on every level. Now, there were a lot of good things that happened around all that, but the institutional structures of Christianity became the habitation of devils. It became very demonic. It became evil, mm -hmm. literally, where you have popes killing, having people killed. And I mean, you've got yeah. horrific things that happened. And then you got the popes fighting one another, and it's just, it's incredible all that happened. And this is not to slam Catholics. There are many, many people who are Catholic, who love the Lord with all of their heart. It has nothing. It's about the system. And it's about our history and just, and, yes. and not hiding from it. No, and facing it. learn from it. Exactly. Right. Well, I think that created a backlash so that the church began to um, want to withdraw from anything worldly. Mm -hmm. And it was also, of course, it came a lot from Wesleyanism, from John Wesley, the impulse for holiness, which the Moravians really impacted him, yes. the desire to be holy, the desire to be holy. And out of that holiness came this idea to withdraw from anything worldly. Mm -hmm. And so the structures and the systems of the world became the world that we must love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So they begin to withdraw from anything worldly. Well, when you do that, then what are we doing in the meantime? God so loved the world, right? right? So we have he, to keep things in balance. But right? see, that got reduced to God loves the people in the world. You know, he loves oh. people. You know what I'm saying? So, but what ended up happening is they became so afraid. And I, and I relate to this on some level because I grew up in it, in a... This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We sang songs about going to heaven because the world became so corrupted in their minds because, I think, of medieval Christianity. So they ended up developing an eschatology that became uh, millennialism. And millennialism is the idea, and there's different forms of it, premillennialism, uh, post-millennialism, amillennialism, and it's based on Revelation chapter 20, where for a thousand years Satan is bound in this vision. The, the, the seer there has a vision of Satan being bound for a thousand years, you know, with a chain, he's put in a pit, and all this happens for a thousand years, and then at the end he's released, there's another great conflict, and then um, Christ brings the victory. And so they took that vision from Revelation chapter 20, and they began to develop a concept of the kingdom that postponed the victory of the kingdom. And so what they did is they privatized and pietized. And to make it, to pietize means to turn it into personal piety. Mm. So it became, the kingdom became a matter of my private experience. It became privatized, it became pietized. So the kingdom is happening in me, you know, into my heart, into my heart, Lord Jesus, come and live within me. And so they and begin that's to- true. It is true, but it again- Incomplete. incomplete. <laughs> it's incomplete. I need to throw a flag like I'm in football here. Incomplete. Okay. I don't guess that would be a penalty, but I'll let my football people figure that out. But regardless, so, so he, has, he has this kingdom. We have this kingdom working within us. But then we're believing that when Jesus comes, 
then he will establish his kingdom on the earth and rule and reign for a thousand years. Then there will be one final conflict, and then you have the new heaven and the new earth. So they set up this timeline of the kingdom that says that the period between Jesus' ascension and his return is purely about evangelism. It's Mm -hmm. simply about helping people get saved so they can enter the kingdom when Jesus comes back. Go to heaven when they die. Go to heaven not when they die. Not at all about bringing heaven to earth. No, no, not yet. Now, they, they believe that heaven will come to earth, but, but when Christ returns. So what ended up happening is the eschatology shifted to where now the hope is, is all the resurrection, the second coming, the return, the rapture. And then within that, within that's called premillennialism because they believe the coming of the Lord is pre 1,000 years kingdom. It's pre-millennial. So Jesus is coming back pre-millennial. But then you had a scheme that developed within what's called dispensationalism, which came out of you know, J.N. Darby in the 1830s, and it was really popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible in the mm-hmm. 1920s and all that. And and I remember my dad had a Schofield Reference Bible, and he was not a dispensationalist. He hated that. Mm-hmm. He'd look through those notes and fuss at the, those notes in that yeah. Bible. This is not right. But anyway... Schofield really popularized it. But that idea became Daniel's 70 weeks in, in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, has been postponed, or at least the, the, the 70th week has been postponed until right before Jesus comes. And so what will happen first is Jesus is going to come back in a secret rapture and take the church away. Then the clock will start ticking again for the Jews, for Israel. And for seven years, there will be Daniel's 70th of the 70 weeks. The last week will happen, which is a seven-year period. And the church will be raptured, will be in heaven with the Lord, having the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoying all of that. Then there will be seven years of, of tribulation and plagues and all that's going to happen. Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, all that stuff's going to happen. And then the Lord's going to come back at the end of the 70 years with the church, rescue the Jews from the Antichrist, and then set up his kingdom for a thousand years. That scheme of things, popularized by the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, and all of that, all of that, uh, which came out of, by the way, Dallas Theological Seminary, which is the premier uh, dispensational school in the world. Even though they've they've kind of modified some of their views now, and they call it progressive dispensationalism. They're trying to correct some of the obvious errors. And they're right. still struggling with that. But the point is, is that this eschatology, even for the churches that didn't embrace a pre-tribulational rapture. Like my dad did not, for example. He believed in a post-tribulational rapture. So he believed the tribulation was coming. But he still believed in a rapture. He still believed in a rapture. It's going to happen at the end. Mm -hmm. There will be seven years, the Antichrist, but we would go through the tribulation as well. He believed we would be here through it all, and then Jesus would come back, and the the return of Christ would be all one event. And then my grandfather was what's called mid-tribulational. He believed Jesus was going to come and get us in the middle right before the wrath was poured out. And so, and man, I hear them fuss about that all my life, you know. And so... These views, wherever you ended up falling on that, if you ended up being a premillennialist, then a premillennialist postpones the victory of Christ's kingdom and the subduing of his enemies under his feet until after Jesus returns. Then the other views that arose was postmillennialism, which the postmillennialists believe that that thousand-year reign described in Revelation chapter 20 is describing a long period of time doesn't have to be exactly a thousand any more than cattle on a thousand hills is exactly a thousand. You know, just a thousand was the biggest number that they had. So it'd be like saying a million, 
you know, so it was just a long, long period of time. Well, not only that, for me, when I look at that verse, and it was many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I heard Bill Johnson make reference to that verse and just kind of in passing go like, why do we put so much stake on a, on a verse that's obviously symbolic? Because in that verse, right. it's talking about the dragon of old. Is yeah. the dragon of old symbolic or literal? Yeah. Symbolic of the devil, right? right. Into he's going to throw. He's going to put them in chains. Now, is the the dragon of old wrapped in literal chains? That's what or I used is to say. A, a chain forged in Pittsburgh. Right, 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 right. <laughs> is it literal or symbolic? Right, it's symbolic. I, and I into used to it, say, is he going to throw them in a pit? Is it like a manhole cover? <laughs> <laughs> right. And is this thing a literal pit or is it symbolic? It's all pit? symbolic. And so, if the 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 dragon symbolic, the chain symbolic, the pit symbolic, why is the thousand years literal? Exactly. Right, and so it just doesn't make sense hermeneutically. No, it right? doesn't. In the interpretation of Scripture, to all of a sudden make that become literal. No, and then it doesn't fit with the timeline of Paul's teaching in other places. And I used to, when I first started seeing all of this in the yeah. late '90s, and I was really studying through what's called preterism and uh-huh. you know the fulfilling of the AD seventy and all Most of that stuff. Most people won't know what that is. Could you explain that? So preterism yeah. means that the book they believe that the Book of Revelation is talking about the events in AD 70, 40 years after Christ's resurrection, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. So you have basically four views of the book of Revelation. You have what's called the futurist view, which was what most people hold, that the book of Revelation is describing the end times. Then you have the um, the idealist view, which is that the book of Revelation is describing the battle between good and evil in a very general sense mm-hmm. and can be fulfilled in many different ways. Mm-hmm. You and I could be living through it you know, at any particular time. And and then there is the historicist view, which says the book of Revelation lays over human history. The problem with that is the longer Christ doesn't return, the more it stretches out your grid and right. it starts getting really thin. And then there is the preterist view, and it comes from the word preter, which means past. And it just means that they believe that the book of Revelation refers to what happened in AD 70. Well, and it's also the book of Revelation starts with this is the revelation of, of Jesus, Jesus and it talks about the virgin giving birth and all yes. that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it really is the revelation of who he was. Yeah, and the whole the point earth. of the book of Revelation, which if, if just for full disclosure, my perspective on the book of Revelation would be considered primarily preterist, even though I do see the idealist point of view in that the book of Revelation is this powerful description of what the battle between good and evil looks like at any time that it happens. Yeah, right? I, I like to call myself a partial preterist. Right. A full preterist would believe that everything is in the past, including the, the second coming, the resurrection, right. all that. And I don't right. believe that. I that still believe the, the coming of the Lord. Yes. When I say the coming of the Lord, I mean the full manifestation of Christ in the world, his appearance, the veil being ripped open and Christ being fully manifest, heaven being fully manifest to earth. Right. And, and His I enemies do, fully subdued. Fully subdued. The and glory I, of and the I Lord do believe there the is a resurrection yeah. at the end where we are physically glorified, mm-hmm. where this mortal puts on immortality, this corruptible puts right. on incorruption, right. and the dead that has and the not living. Happened yet. It has not happened yet. Yeah. And so that's why I would agree with that. That's why I would say my views of the book of Revelation are primarily preteristic. However, I do think that the idealistic view of it, that it's a battle between good and evil is still valid. And for me, what, what the key that opened the book of revelation for me was the book of Hebrews chapter mm-hmm. 12, when he talks about, we have come to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, we have come to an innumerable company of angels. And I began to realize that the book of revelation is about the very same thing. The book of Hebrews is about, which is the removal 
of the old temple, which was but a model, a type and shadow, and the bringing in of the true temple, which is the body of Christ, a living temple. And so if you look at the book of Revelation, it starts with Christ among the seven candlesticks. Mm -hmm. What are those candlesticks? The seven churches. Mm -hmm. So, And then you go through the whole book. It's measure the temple and measure the city. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about the judgment of the great whore, as he calls her, the great harlot, which is corrupted Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And he says, so then you see these contrasts in the book of Revelation between the old temple, the new temple, the old priesthood, the new priesthood, the old prophets and the new prophets. And you see then the contrast between the old city, the new city, the old temple, the new temple, the old earth, the new earth, the old heaven, the new heaven. It's all about the old creation being made new in Christ. It's a powerful, powerful book when you look at it that way. Yeah. For me, I think the, the thing that turned me, like I'd always struggled with some of the millennial idea, just didn't fit with, with the way I saw scripture, but I didn't know why. Right. And I think for me, the key that really began to open my eyes to like the idea of preterism, and I didn't have that word at that time, but that things were already fulfilled was Matthew 24. Oh yeah. With Matthew 24, the disciples are asking Jesus and he's talking about the end of the age in, you know, the destruction of the temple that not one stone would be left upon another and that, you know, if two were in the field, one would be taken and don't go to the city, go to the hills, you know, this, this whole discourse on all this horrible stuff happening and actual instructions on what to do when it happens. And so many of the people that I was walking in church with were, were talking about that as if that could happen any moment. Right. And I'm like, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for today. Like what's going on with that. And I often wrestled with, why are people wanting to rebuild the temple? Like we're not supposed to sacrifice animals anymore. We have Jesus, you know, one sacrifice for all. And when I read a book called Victorious Eschatology by Harold Eberly. I just met him the other day. Did you? Did I tell you that? No. I just met Harold Eberly. I'm excited about that. (laughs) He's coming to Freedom Life sometime soon. That'd be wonderful. We didn't talk about it. Well, we should. (laughs) (laughs) So he and a couple other uh, gentlemen, I believe wrote a book called Victorious Eschatology. And in, in it, it said, you know, we win obviously yeah that's a fantastic book and it showed me about matthew 24 was the real key for me because the disciples asked jesus point blank when will these things happen yes and he answered their question like why why you know i think it was c.s lewis or somebody that actually said you know it's a shame that jesus got that wrong (laughs) and i'm thinking like oh (laughs) you know i'm a little like aghast when you stop and think about that that's how we had to wrestle through the answer to the question he said it will happen within a generation yeah he said this generation will not pass away it was 40 years later (sighs) that that, a generation actually happened (laughs) that rome came that actually you know they should not have gone into the city they had to go to the hills and Mm -hmm. there was a and the destruction actually happened there was not one stone left yes. upon another. Yeah. They set fire to the temple. The gold melted, and when it cooled, the Roman soldiers went in and actually took the stones apart to get the melted gold out. Wow. And there was not one stone left upon another. Yeah. And um, so the, the idea that all of that was actually fulfilled in the time that Jesus said it would be fulfilled, my question is, why do we keep pushing it off to the future yeah. if it already happened? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the enemy doesn't want us to know how how the kingdom is actually here now that we're supposed exactly to be releasing right. it. So if we think it's supposed to be off in the by and by, we don't understand our own role that's right. in the establishment of it today. That's the truth, and that's the key. And I think that's why the enemy fights very hard to distort our eschatology. So for me, a couple of keys that really helped me was, one, understanding 
that there are comings of the Lord described in New Testament that are not the second coming, as we would call it, or the return of Christ. And Daniel 7 is the passage that helped me with that. When it says that Jesus, or one like a son of man, comes to the ancient of days, and he comes with clouds. And I realize that there is a coming of the Lord in his ascension to the ancient of days to receive the kingdom. Then I started seeing in Isaiah 19 and a hundred other places in the in the prophets where the, the coming of the Lord with clouds is talked about often throughout the scripture, all through the Psalms. The coming of the Lord with clouds is not necessarily the end of history. It can be the coming of the Lord in judgment upon a city. So he came with clouds upon Babylon, for example. Right. And there's several other instances like that. So when Jesus talks about coming with clouds... Uh, or when in like Revelation one, or when he tells Pilate, you know, or the high priest rather, um, and they talk about the coming with clouds. You'll see the Son of Man coming with clouds mm-hmm. in in Matthew twenty four. Uh, when he talks about coming with clouds, he's not talking about the end of the of the world or the end of history. He's talking about coming with clouds in judgment. And then the key phrase for me in Matthew twenty four was, "Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven." Well, I always read that, was always taught to read that, then shall appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, mm. which means we'll all look up to the sky and there's the Son of Man coming to the earth. But that's not what it says. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So then shall appear the sign upon the earth that the Son of Man is enthroned in heaven. Mm. He's referring to Daniel 7, that he has ascended up to the Ancient of Days with clouds has been seated upon the throne and received the kingdom. So what was the earthly sign that Christ is enthroned? The destruction of Jerusalem. So the destruction of Jerusalem is not only the judgment upon Israel who refused to believe and accept their Messiah, it's also a judgment upon Rome because he makes that very clear in the prophets when he says, I will will shave with a hired razor. I'm going to bring Assyria in and I'm going to shave with a hired razor. I'm literally going to hire Assyria to, to chasten my people in order to bring them to repentance. But then he said, but then I'm going to turn around and judge Assyria for doing it. Right. <laughs> so the point for in all of God's judgment is always for salvation. So even when he judges the Romans, it's ultimately to bring salvation to the Romans. Mm-hmm. It's always to bring salvation. Mm-hmm. The wrath of God is always driven by his love. Right. Always. That's good. But the point in this is that it is the sign on earth of the Son of Man in heaven. So this is one of the things that's been kind of heartbreaking for me is I feel like I feel like that the church has lost one of its most effective arguments for the truthfulness, the veracity of Christianity, mm-hmm. which is that Jesus prophesied that within 40 years, yeah. Jerusalem would be destroyed. And everything it he said came, came to, to pass. pass. And God gave them in his mercy a full generation, 40 years often represented a generation yes. for them to accept and for the message to permeate that culture, right. right? So the perfect lamb of God died on the cross yeah. once for all. And yet the, the temple and the animal sacrifices continued for one generation. And then the Lord said, no more. That's right. No more. And no then, more are we going to have a false side by side with the true. That's right. And then Paul works that out in tremendous detail in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he works out the whole issue of how can we trust that God tells the truth. So the book of Romans, people often think it's about how we get saved. Well, he starts off with that. 
but it's not really about how we get saved. It's about how do we know God tells the truth? Mm. Because ultimately, God made promises to Israel that did not seem to be coming to pass. Mm. He promised, I will give you a new heart. I will take out the heart of stone. I will raise you up like a valley of dry bones. He promised, I will return you. I'll bring you back from exile and you'll be the head of the nations. He made all of these promises about the restoration of the kingdom of David. All the promises yeah. about Levi is going to be a priest forever. I'm going to rebuild the temple, Ezekiel. He makes all of these promises in the prophets. And Paul says, has God forsaken his people whom he foreknew? Has God cast them off? He says, God forbid. And then he goes into this whole explanation of how just, and, and you have the whole Daniel 70 weeks, they'd been taken into exile. Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 29 was going to be for 70 years. And then the Lord shows Daniel that that 70 years has been multiplied seven times because they still haven't fully repented. Which is the 70 weeks. Which is the 70 weeks, 490 years. That brings us to the time of Jesus. When he walks in 490 years, Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel 70 exactly weeks. Right. Not a millennial thing. No, 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 no. Not it's throwing done. it thousands of years off into the future. Which makes it meaningless. if you Right, right, right. right. No, you can't put a pause on the scripture and say, but it didn't come for it, thousands. It, right in the middle of it right no right. jesus was the fulfillment of he daniel was the fulfillment in fact the six things that were meant mm -hmm. to happen in daniel's 70th week that daniel lists in daniel chapter uh, 9 the six things that he said would happen all happened at the cross all six of yeah. them but so jesus fulfills the 490 years the timeline of daniel but they still didn't believe and so now you have another period of time that Paul deals with in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So he starts off with 9. He says, I, in chapter 9, he says, I wish I could wish myself a curse for my people. And he says, has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? No. And he goes into this whole deal about uh, Jacob and Esau and, and how God chooses. And then he works his way into chapter 11. And for the sake of time, I'll just summarize it. But he creates a timeline. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Because Israel did not believe, they're going to be broken away like olive branches broken off of a tree, so that through their fall, salvation may come to the nations. So the Old Testament prophets saw it as Israel's restoration would be the catalyst of salvation for the nations. Mm. And Paul said, but, ah, but there's a mystery, and it's only been shown to us now, apostles and prophets, what they didn't see before, that in reality there's been a script flip. And instead of salvation coming to the nations through the salvation of Israel, it's actually through the fall of Israel and only a remnant of Israel being saved, of whom Paul was a part. A remnant of Israel is saved. The rest of Israel is blinded. Their heart is hardened. They're broken off like branches. And now the Gentile nations are grafted in like branches within this tree. And then he says, ah, but look, look at what God is doing. Through the fullness of the nations... That means salvation coming to the nations, knowledge of the glory of the Which Lord covering Gentiles, the earth. All of them. The right. Gentiles, that's right. right. The, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And all that the prophets foretold about the salvation of the nations, which they said would happen following the salvation of Israel. And Paul says, no, as it turns out, only a remnant of Israel is saved first, Jew first, then also the Greek. But now he says, there is coming through the amazing. Um, incredible strategies of God, which he talks about in Romans 11. He says, you know, who can, who, can, who can figure out what God is doing? It's beyond understanding, and it's amazing. And he gives him praise for it. But he says that through the fullness of Gentile salvation, through the nations coming to Christ, there will literally be a, a catalyst for eschatological jealousy. Mm. 
And he quotes that from Deuteronomy and Moses, where Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy with the people who are not a people. And Paul takes that one scripture and pulls it out and says, see, here's what God is doing. He's actually going to fulfill the blessings of Abraham. I was getting ready to say, because this was the original plan through Abraham, all the all nations, the nations should be, be blessed. blessed. So it wasn't like plan B. It was no. always plan A. The only thing that changed How was, it happened. is the timeline. Yeah. So instead of it being... You know, Messiah comes and saves all of Israel, and out of Israel being saved, now all the nations get saved. Messiah comes, Israel doesn't believe him, so he saves a remnant. The rest are broken away, but through that displacement, now the nations flood into that displacement, and they begin to fill up the tree, grafted in like wild olive branches. This is Romans 11. Grafted in like wild olive branches so that they then begin to produce the full, the pleroma, the fullness of the olive harvest. That's the image he's using there as an olive tree. Otherwise, we'll talk about the man in just a second. He uses a man, he uses a building, he uses different metaphors. Here he's using an olive tree. And he says that through the fullness of the Gentiles, jealousy will be provoked in the heart of Israel. And that, that Moses' prophecy that I will provoke you to envy jealousy with a nation who is not a people who are not a people, a nation who is not a nation. He said what's going to happen is suddenly there's going to be like a catalyst we're going to reach critical mass of Abraham's blessing in the nations. And when it happens, Israel is going to suddenly wake up like the prodigal in the hog pen and come to themselves and say, hang on. How did you get our promises? How did you get Abraham's blessing? And when that happens, the Bible says, and, and their heart will be turned. And he uses that word turn quite a bit because it's used in the Old Testament prophets a lot. And he says, but when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Second mm -hmm. Corinthians 3. When it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And he's saying that when that happens, then there's, then, then there's going to be this opening of the eyes of Israel. Mm -hmm. And there will be a conversion of Jews around the world, which is already trickling in. It's already yeah. beginning. Yeah. But it will explode around the world. And yeah. all Israel shall be saved. That's Paul. I didn't say that. All Israel shall be saved. And then all of Israel gathered in with all the nations becomes Ephesians 2, the one, one new man. man. Yeah. And that one new man of Jews and Gentiles together then begins to grow up Ephesians 4 into the full grown man. Of the fullness of the head. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yeah. I think that's just amazing to me. And it when is. you started talking about it at church the other day, it, for the full message, again, myfreedomlife.com. Um, you can slash watch, watch it. Yeah. Slash watch. Um, you can see the whole series where he, he maps out the timeline because for many people coming from dispensational backgrounds, they wouldn't understand that the 70 weeks and the 490 years is from the time that, that Daniel read that. Yeah. And in and 70 times the 70, 70 years times the 70 weeks equals 490 years. And 490 years from that point, Jesus yeah. walked into from Jerusalem. From the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the city and the temple, mm -hmm. from the decree of Cyrus until the, the triumphal entry when yes. Jesus entered into Jerusalem yes. is, is exactly right. when all the stones would cry out because right. that moment in time was marked in history. Right. That yeah. moment in time, there was no fudging that there's yeah. a lot of things. in I think in our timeline with the coming of the kingdom are fluid depending on our participation in it. Yeah. But there's some moments that That's are right. Kairos moments. That's exactly that right. We're not going to change that. And if they didn't cry Hosanna at that moment, the rocks were going to cry That's out because right. that was the fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks. Yes. 
And so, and with the fullness of the man, with uh, the whole new man, with the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, with all of the Jews coming to know Christ, all of the Gentiles beginning to experience his glory as the waters cover the sea. And what I love about that particular visualization is not just that the seas have water covering them, it's that they are, the the seas are water, right? right? It just, it's actually like they are actually the same thing. They're one in the same. And so when the Jews and the Gentiles begin, can begin to come one we become one new body that begins to mature and become worthy of our king we become worthy of our groom and the other day when um you were preaching on ecclesia just before we came into the main service um, a small group of us were in prayer and i saw the vision of um the maturing of a human being and i had no idea you were going to that point in your message that day but i saw the, the stages of human growth. Like, how do you get to a, a full man? How do you get to a mature man, a mature person? Well, at first you're, you're, you're born as a baby, and then you become a toddler and a yeah. kid and a teenager, and eventually to a mature adult. It doesn't just happen instantly. It's, there's a process, and there's a process of relationship with the parent even, where the, the infant is 100% dependent Yeah upon the parent to meet their needs. And they are so, there's a a literal, a bonding and a healthy relationship. There's actually an attachment. And when we get to the inner healing part further on, we'll understand like when, when those things aren't healthy, the wounds that it creates in us as human beings and why we don't know how to attach well. But attachment is actually a biological need. We need to be attached. But as we mature, something has to happen to that attachment. And that is, as a toddler begins to pull away and understand that they're not one, literally, with the parent, that they are actually um, attached, but in in an independent source, like they are two different beings, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So then the toddler goes through separation anxiety. And they begin to establish, you know, in, in, in an immature way, you know, their independence. No, mine, right? Right. Right. They're just immature. They're not sinful. They're immature, right? Yeah. Now they have to learn to manage that independence and maintain a healthy connection. Then they go into childhood where they're learning and to express themselves. And in, in, in teenage years where they have to, they become completely independent for a season. And it's awkward and it's hard and all of that. But in full maturity, they begin to reattach yes. in a very healthy and voluntary way. Yes. And it's like you cannot have the bride and the groom becoming married, if you will, without full maturity, right? The groom can't marry the kid, right? He can't marry the infant. It doesn't work that way. It's only when it becomes into full maturity. And I feel like the Lord is taking us on this journey of understanding where we are in the timeline, where we are in the scope of the coming of the kingdom, how it actually was inaugurated when Jesus walked the earth. It was. He did not miss it. It wasn't postponed for thousands of years. The kingdom has been working in the earth and progressively and slowly um, becoming more and more established. Like the, the, the eradication of slavery. And there's so many things on the earth that we can look at today and say, it's a completely different world thanks to Jesus. Yes. Even the advent of hospitals and all of that came out of Christians being motivated by the Lord to begin to to heal people and have them have walk in divine health. And, yeah. and this is the coming of the kingdom, how it permeates culture, how it changes things yeah. in a progressive sense. And we, if we take the kingdom and we just say, we're just here to survive. The world's going to get worse and worse. Jesus is going to come and destroy it all, catch us up, take us away, and then poof, 
as you like to say, he comes and does our homework for us, and then he comes back, and suddenly everything's okay. Like We miss the whole point of what he assigned us to do. That's exactly right. And our role generationally, corporately, as individuals, I just feel like the enemy has done a really great job of sidelining us. Yes. And there's this really great book called Get in the Game. Yeah, I've heard of that one. I've heard of that one. <laughs> and the author is Steve Pixler, <laughs> available on Amazon or stevepixler.com, yeah, right? Yeah. Where um, where we can understand like the enemy wants to sideline us, yeah. but really we need to get in the game. We're making the same mistake now that the first century Jews made, mm-hmm. that they thought that the coming of Messiah, that he would personally lead the victory over their enemies. So they By exp- force. Yes, by force. And they thought Messiah would come. And in other words... We can't do it until Messiah gets here. It's the same problem that Israel made at Sinai Mm. when they basically said, we don't, we didn't know humans could survive the presence of God, but we now know they can, but it has to be a special person like you, Moses, you go talk to the Lord because we think we'll die. So they, they choose a Moses or they let Moses become their, their stand in their intermediary. Mm -hmm. And he goes and talks to the Lord. Well, that same problem happened when Christ came. They were expecting Messiah to come, and they were thinking, we can't do this without Messiah. Messiah is going to have to come and do this for us. And Jesus was saying, I'm now with you, but I shall be in you. I'm coming, but I'm coming He's to, here now, right? to deal with death. I'm ascending into heaven, and then I'm pouring out the comforter so that you will be equipped to do in partnership with me what you don't think can be done. We still have the same problem. So like my friend that I talked to the other day, whom I love very dearly, I'm not being critical of him at all, but his idea is that the theology that we're talking here about the kingdom is actually sort of dangerous because we then think that the kingdom can be brought in through human effort and we end up with stuff like the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, you know, medieval Christianity. It needs to be brought in through human partnership, like the mature but it's man still now through in the partnership spirit. with the parent. It's still through the spirit. Yes. It has to be through the spirit flowing out of humans. Where is the kingdom? It's in you. <clears throat> Jesus said it's inside. And it's not meat yes. and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. But we're still making the same mistake when we think that the church is not qualified to bring in the kingdom or to bring in the victory of Christ, to subdue his enemies under his feet, 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians 15. We don't think the church can accomplish that. We think that Messiah has to return and do it for us. It's the very same mistake postponed. It's still the same thing. We're doing it again. Well, that's the immature child <clears throat> completely dependent on the parent saying, you Absolutely. do it for me. Absolutely. You do it for me. I, I trust you. It. You do it for me. I can't do this. And it's like, yes, you can. How many times would I do that, do that with my kids? They bring something to me or it's a knot in their shoelaces. I can't get this undone. Oh, oh yeah, you can, honey. Let me show you. And I help them. And look, pull on that. Pull on that. And they and I help them learn to do it because my goal is not that they're you know thirty years from now they're still coming to me yes. wanting to untie the knot in their shoes. They have to learn to do that for themselves. Same right. thing with budgeting and balancing a checkbook or whatever. So I think this is how about going into the family business together, which is the establishment of the kingdom. It's the kingdom. Yeah. That's what it is. And so I think the point here is that we have to have an audacious faith in the power that resides within the ecclesia. We have to believe not just in Jesus. Mm -hmm. We have to believe in the Jesus in us. Right. We have to believe. And in his plan. And in his plan. (laughs) And in his power within us. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. I don't, I, I think we have, as, as Bill Johnson likes to say, we have more faith in the second coming than we do in the Holy Spirit within the church. Wow. And I think we have to rethink that. And so the ecclesia, the whole message of the ecclesia 
is Jesus isn't coming back until the work is done. I have people ask me, do you believe Jesus is coming soon? And I have to say, I believe he can. I believe he could come before I finish this sentence. He never does. I've done that a million times. But he could have. I, I, I honestly do believe. Yeah, he's I'm not, not waiting on our permission. He's right? not waiting on our And I'm not trying to be cute. I really don't think he has to you know, fit within my theology or my eschatology. However, when I look at Scripture, I see 1 Corinthians 15 in the subduing of the principalities and powers under his feet while he's at the right hand of the Father. Until, you must reign until your enemies are subdued. Not after. The premillennialist has Jesus reigning after the enemies are subdued. That's not what 1 Corinthians 15 says. He must reign until. He's at the right hand of the Father until the enemies are subdued. And then Acts chapter 3, the heavens must receive him until the times of the restitution of all things. And then Ephesians 2, he's building up a temple, a habitation of God through the Spirit, which is yeah. the holy building of God made up of people, Jews and Gentiles together. Yeah. I don't think we're there yet. And then Ephesians 4, the full-grown man, measure of the stature mm -hmm. of the fullness of Christ. I don't think we're there yet. I always say I believe he's coming, the bride is, the groom is coming back for a bride worthy of her groom. Yes. And, and a mm -hmm. temple worthy of its king. Right. We're building a yeah. temple. Yeah. We're building a temple made of living people. And it's, and so that's why I will end on the note of inner healing. Because the ecclesia, King Jesus' parliament, as you like to say, mm -hmm. the way he brings the kingdom, the way he works through individuals, that's why the enemy so wants to destroy the individual people. And it's not just because it hurts God's heart, although it certainly does. God loves every single individual. Like, he made them on purpose. You have a purpose. You were wired on purpose. Your gifts, yeah. your personality. God doesn't want to do this without you. Oh, yeah. Right? He doesn't want to live without you. Whether yeah. you know him yet or not, it doesn't matter. You're his kid. And the enemy comes to wound us, to destroy us, to try to sideline us, to disempower us because he's afraid of us. Yeah. And he's definitely afraid of us be knowing who we are and coming yes. into our own healing where we show up to the table fully authentic, fully willing to give our opinions, to bring our gifts or our talents. And it doesn't matter if you can just draw a stick figure, if you can paint a masterpiece. When you show up with what you have, yeah. right? And you just bring it all and you bring it out of love and you're other-centered and self-giving and you're not so self-focused. You're not guarded and so worried, but you can be authentically you because you've had inner healing, then when you have a group of people like that coming together, they can hear God's voice and they can begin to literally um, usher in the kingdom in a healthy way because we are powerful whether we know it or not. You are bringing in one kingdom or another. You're yes. empowering light or you're empowering darkness. And the question is, what are we doing? Yep. Yep. And in order to do it his way, like it is not an individual sport. Yeah. It's not like, well, I'm just going to be perfect. Like I can, like I get, you know what? I'm really a very unselfish person when I'm alone. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> we really do need to learn to yeah. do it together. It's done in community. It's done in community. It has yeah. to be done in community. He didn't yeah. say, I'll build my individual temples. He said, I'll build my ecclesia. Yeah. 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 And it's made up of living stones. The, mm -hmm. the key is just not just faith in Jesus, but faith in the Jesus in you. Yeah. And, and there's that audacity. And in each other. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's where honor comes in. Well, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's the mortar that holds those stones <laughs> it together. It really is. It's really good. Yes, really yes. good. Really good. All right. All right. Go by kingdombrewing.com. Check out our resources. Tell your friends and neighbors. Stand out on the front porch and yell at everyone about how good this podcast really Can is. Can I interrupt your closing? Yes, you may. Would you sure. mention King Jesus University coming could. up in January, please? I certainly mm-hmm. could. January the 14th, January the 21st, two Saturdays. I'm actually hosting... Uh, a master class I'm calling it but it's King Jesus University and it's going to be on the kingdom of God everything we're talking about right now like a primer it's a kingdom 101 kind of thing and it's going to be a crash course on the kingdom of God so I'll be giving you more information about that as we go along but you can always check out our church website myfreedomlife.com slash events or you can go to stevepixler.com slash kjb it's going to be so good it's going to be fun Mm -hmm. So check out kingdombrewing.com. Check out the resources. Tell your friends and neighbors. And let's release the kingdom in Jesus' name. Have a great week.